Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. We need to get going because it's after 9.15 and uh, I have a lot of stuff. I've talked to several other teachers and we all agree that this is um, uh, a data-driven course in a sense. And so we have a lot of data today. And this, while this may not be as controversial, it's not any less important. Um, This probably of all six lessons, this is probably the one that is the least controversial, I think, Um, but uh, not the least important. So let's pray. We'll get started. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you asking for mercy, that you would give us ears uh, to hear truth about you, and that that truth would be accurate. Pray that your spirit would be generous, enlighten us, Lord. We want to learn more about you and ourselves, that we might uh, worship and serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So... um, what do you think when someone says this? I mean, is, can, can you prove that God exists? Yes or no? Now you might say, well, what do you mean by the word prove, right? Right? I mean, philosophically, scientifically. Um, I would argue that you can't prove that God exists in the way that most people think of the word prove. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. And oh, a little housekeeping, too. I've told, uh, somebody told me that they couldn't see the screen. And since we're going through so many Bible verses, and it's important to see the screen. Um, so is there a better place for this? Like if I go like this, or, I mean, is there a, or if you can't see the screen, maybe you should sit closer to the front, or, but I, what's better, back? I mean, I just need to know, like tilting it, what, what's, Need a bigger one. Right? I, I tried to raise it. I can't. This is as high as it goes. Sadly, I could not raise it any higher. So I would like to help people um, if uh, they can. I thought I offended Keith and he was going to leave. But um, uh, no, he just went to get the notes. Yes? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, um, so, you know, I think that God um, in didn't intend that we prove his existence. Really, I think that God has established an economy that's rooted in faith. Wouldn't you agree? You know, it'd be, uh, why else would the scripture say that it's impossible to please God without faith, right? So their faith is part of God's economy. And even this morning, when I was early this morning, I couldn't sleep, and so I was looking over my notes, and I didn't have time to change the PowerPoint, but um, I probably should have bookmarked it, but the verse I thought of this morning, or two verses, that is even better than what I have on the screen is Romans 1, 17 and 18, which I used to have memorized, but I don't trust myself, so I'm going to turn to it. And so I'm going to read that. Uh, actually, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or most translations say faith to faith. I like that better. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Uh, what I think that means is that it, it beginning to end, start to finish, the entire, uh, it, it's by faith, first and last. But many have tried to prove the existence of God um, through the centuries. Um, the most important, uh, I mentioned his name uh, last week, the most important theologian probably between Augustine and, say, Calvin and Luther, the Reformation, was probably uh, Aquinas, um, a Catholic priest. Um, he lived in the 13th century. We don't get a whole lot from uh, what we call the Middle Ages or even the Dark Ages. Um, but he offered um, five proofs um, for the existence of God. And uh, two of them are still talked about a lot today. Um, uh, this one and, and this one, there's some modern proof that's uh, got a little traction in the, in the philosophy world. Um, but it's that fifth one that um, interests me. Uh, Aquinas argued that, um, that the intricate complexity and order in the universe can only be explained through the existence of a great designer. And so I agree with Aquinas that he, when he rejected the idea that the universe was created by chance. Being a math guy, I don't consider myself a mathematician. I'm a high school math teacher. It's a big difference, right? A high school chemistry teacher isn't necessarily a, a chemist. Right, but um, I know something about math and something about statistics. I took some statistics courses in college, and I, I just can't even imagine uh, what kind of the probability that this is all here uh, by chance just seems uh, too remote, impossible to me. Um, but Aquinas's argument is um, often referred to as a teleological argument. And so I wanted to, uh, it's a word that comes up sometimes. There are certain words when you study theology that kind of come up a lot. And this one is one of them. And I think it's a fair, uh, it's fair to talk about it. I don't know that it's important that you remember the word, but if you come across it, um, hopefully the word makes sense. Um, because his argument is also referred to as a teleological argument. And it's from the Greek word telos, or te, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, which means end or purpose. And so um, we see here in theology, it's the, the idea, we're, we're, we're looking at the end. If you think of a telescope, right? A telescope, uh, the scope, um, you, you know, the, the looking through, you, you're, the scope refers to, to seeing something. And so a telescope allows us to see the end, right? To see far away, as, as opposed to a microscope, right? Where we're looking up close. Um, and so... Uh, teleology is a study of purpose, ends, and goals in natural processes. And I wanted to bring that up. Uh, it comes up a lot in, when, when I studied. And I would say that our examination of God, especially this morning, emphasizes that God's rule is teleological. That is, God governs all events for a purpose, that there's a purpose in mind. And I think that is crucial for us. And it's really the theme, too, of the final lesson, because that kind of 
wraps it all together as well. So we'll talk more about that in Lesson 6. We're in Lesson 3 right now. There's this notion that God governs history. We talked last week about how he governs individual decisions, but, but he, not, he doesn't just do that um, randomly. He governs with purpose. Um, and so we, we uh, think of verses like, um, like this one in 1 Chronicles, that um, um, God uh, is the ruler over all things. And my aim this morning is to show you that God rules over his creation with purpose. So a key word this morning is purpose. Um, I know that this proposition is probably not difficult for me to prove with, with most of you. Um, uh, but I maintain that his rule is not only driven by purpose in a general sense, but that his governing uh, providence preserves creation until it reaches his, its intended goal. So uh, when I was doing the, uh, my Romans class and even when we wrote the Paul study, um, I started each lesson with an essential question. And so I think this would probably be, if I had an essential question this morning, this would be it. Um, I'd like you to consider it. Why, why do you think it's important? Not, I don't think it's a hard question. This is not a stumper here. What, uh, why is it important? There's lots of answers I think you could give. Sure. That's absolutely right. And wouldn't you agree that, um, that it matters what view of God we have, right? And there's a lot of people that, that agree with us that God exists, but they don't agree with the God of the Old and New Testament. Agreed? Right? So it does. It's important. And I would say that if we accept that, that God is righteous and just, then his providence must be according to that standard. So his standard is you know, righteousness, right? That's his standard. And that he's just. I think that's important, isn't it? That, it, he, that if we call on the name of the Lord, he's not going to reject us. If we call on the name of the Lord, everyone who does it has the privilege of being saved. Now, of course, it's, it's God alone who can give us those eyes to see, those ears to hear, right? He has mercy on us. But God is just. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about... Um, uh, actually, the whole lesson is really about God's purpose. Um, first, another thing I'd like to say is that God's providence is not arbitrary. And so that's what A.J. was saying, that, you know, that there's a, a direction, right, that, that he has a purpose. And so we should be comforted by the promise that God works everything together, all things together for good. That should be, that should be a comfort to us. His, his providence isn't arbitrary. Another thing I thought of is that you know, we reject open theism, and I don't know if you've heard that term before, but it's the idea that the future is open, that it's not yet been determined. And it's really, I'm surprised that it didn't gain more traction like a long time ago, because frankly, I think that open theism is the, is the logical conclusion if you're Arminian. If you think that, that man is neutral, right, that man is, that, that man is the, the um, determines his own destiny, then how can God Control your destiny, right? Isn't that a problem, right? So if you have, I think if you have an incorrect view of God's sovereignty, it would lead you to open, open theism. 
That's, that's my, my position. I mean, I think that God, God knows, he, when God predestines, the reason he knows is not because he looked into the future and said, oh, that's going to happen? Good, then I mean, I know that. No, God knows the future because he determines it. But the open theism rejects that idea. They have to because they have, the, they have a skewed or I think a, um, an unbiblical view of, of, of man's freedom. They don't, they don't understand that we're, we're bound to our sin nature. Um, so um, God judges, you know, is his, um, his providence is according to a standard of righteousness um, and um, justice. His providence is not arbitrary and he's not capricious. Now that's a fancy word. I kind of like that word. Um, he's not capricious. Uh, capricious means um, uh, that he, he's not given to sudden, uh, to me, not given to sudden and uncontrollable uh, urges or changes of mood. Um, you know, we're like that, right? As human beings, we're, we can be capricious. Um, but we know that God is not that way. And this came up even in um, our study in Genesis, right? When um, God said, uh, just a few weeks back, when God grieved that he, that he had created man. And I used the wrong term last week. But there's two things that bothered me about it. after Once I got into the service and I realized there are two things I said that I didn't like, or that I would like to change. One was I said personification. That's the wrong word. It's anthropomorphism. And that's what, so when in Genesis, when it talks about God grieving that he made man, it's not that God is capricious, that he said, oh man, I didn't know how that was going to work out. And I'm like, that's not God. And the only reason the scripture does that is so we can kind of try to understand God, that we can have an appreciation of God, because God is this big and we're not, right? We're, we're real little. And so the Bible um, will give human characteristics to, to God, apply those to God in a way that helps us to maybe understand God more. It's not that God changed his mind, and I think Scripture is very plain about that. He's not a man that he should change his mind. He's not capricious. Um, if God didn't govern his creation with purpose, then like A.J. said, why would we trust him? Why would we trust him? So um, when Hebrews um, 1.3 uh, speaks of, of Christ sustaining all things by his powerful word. Um, this word sustain means to bear or carry. It's, a, it's that, this image, it should be, it's a dynamic image, really, of Jesus carrying the world from one point to another. There's a destination, and Christ's purpose is to bring the world um, to that goal. It, it's a process, and God has a plan. Um, another thing I wanted to mention was Scripture consistently uh, stresses what I would call the, the telos or, or the, the goal of God's providence. Uh, God's rule of the world is distinctly personal. And if I had a key uh, verse for today or a section, in fact, maybe even a key section really for the whole, uh, my whole module, it'd be Ephesians 1. And you, you look through here, and so it's very personal. This is according to God's good pleasure. He has a plan. He, which he purposed in Christ at a certain time, and we're having been predestined, according, it's, a, it's a plan, who works out everything, right, in conformity with the purpose of his will. 
And this, this really pretty much lays out, I mean, I, this is almost one of those moments where I could just, if this was the microphone, I could drop the mic and, you know, like walk off the stage. This really, everything I, I, I say, beyond, I'm going to try to elaborate here, but this says it. This is a, this is a summary um, of what I'm trying to say. His, uh, God's ultimate purpose is revealed through Scripture. And what would that purpose be? To glorify himself? Uh, to defeat evil, uh, to redeem a people, to give him eternal praise. Um, that would be um, uh, this, and this is a lot here. So maybe, uh, Chris, could you read this for us real quick? I know I caught you looking at the notes there, sorry. Um, you know, I, sometimes, you know, you can't help but do that as a teacher, you know, when somebody's on their phone and you call on them. Um, but uh, that's not what I was trying to do, it's because you were close. So if you could read that to everybody, I think that would be great. Amen. Um, so uh, my next question, which is related to the first, you know, the one that I said was essential, um, is why is the knowledge of God's purposes important? So we, not only is it important to know that God governs with purpose, that God, God um, is, uh, that his providence is rooted in purpose, it's important to know what those purposes are, right? Uh, that's, and so, and, and I would say the consummation of, of these final purposes are meant as motivation, is meant to guide us in our Christian life. So in, for example, um, um, say eschatology, that's the study of end times. Um, uh, I think the primary th thrust of eschatology is uh, ethical. And what I mean by that is the Bible doesn't tell us about the future just as a historical curiosity. It's telling us so we can know what to do so we know what to, how to live. How should we orient our life? And I, I, I've preached it a number of times in the past, but I would sit, probably think that I'm not very heavenward in my focus. I'm kind of now focused, aren't you? Mo many, most of us, right? But I, I think it's important um, that if we know something about the future, um, then what should it cause us to do? When Jesus preaches regarding the end times, what is the goal here? What's the goal here? Johnny, maybe you could read that for me. To be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, but will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand your place on the fence. So Jesus is telling us what's going to happen and so what, what's the moral of the story? What's the conclusion? What's the application? To pursue holiness and pray. Pursue holiness and pray. It, 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 it's not, um, people study Revelation, I suppose. Some people may study it because it's kind of interesting and cool and like, what does this mean? And what, but it, it's meant to, to, to lead us to pray, to depend on God, to pursue holiness. Paul suggests that our knowledge of the future should inspire us to keep um, to keep the faith. 
Paul says, I have fought the good faith. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul is looking ahead, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Um, I, I think that every, almost every good sermon probably could be tied into this, right? Even last week, I thought, I thought about this yesterday, that um, I really appreciated, uh, and I don't want to sound patronizing because he's sitting here, but Pastor's sermon last Sunday about what's our ambition for Christ. I, I hope that, you, that it caused you to think about that. And, and, and at different sta- it's going to be different at different stages in your life. So for me, it was a challenge to me. What's my ambition for Christ? Because I can get caught up in, well, I want to retire. I'd like to take it easy. I'd like to enjoy these grandkids. What's my ambition? What's your ambition? And I, I think that's related to what we're talking about here. In light of God's purposes, in light of the future, in light of, of what God's doing in the world in our church, in our community, what is your ambition for Christ? It's a, it's a, I think it's a fair question. And we, we live in this tension between this age and the age to come, um, what uh, theologians like to call the already and the not yet. I think Frame said that all the time in his book, the already and the not yet. A good example of the already and the not yet would be when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Because there's a, there's a sense that you know, Jesus, the fact that Jesus was in their midst, the kingdom of, he- of heaven was right there in their midst. But there's also a sense that, the, that, you know, he hasn't returned yet. There isn't a new heaven and new earth in a sense. And so there is a, there's a future, right? A, a, a future that's still there. And so um, there, there's tension, right? This present age dominated by sin will not completely expire uh, until Christ's return. So we are, we are risen with Christ but we must also seek the things that are, uh, uh, that are above. We have died to sin, but we must put to, get, put to death the things of this life. Um, so again, let's see. Uh, Alex, maybe you could read that re- for me real quick. Yeah. Therefore, if you have been risen up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So by God's grace, we are ought to live according to the principle of the age to come. Since the present age uh, is to end and the things of this world are to be dissolved, the Christian ought to set, have a set of priorities radically different from those of the world. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter says you ought to live holy and godly lives. We must, we must not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Paul says in Romans 12. Um, when Paul says we must not be conformed to the pattern of this world, it's really the pattern of this age, literally. Um, so we should be motivated by the goal toward which God steers the, the ship of history, I would say. Um, my next point is that God um, preserves um, his creation. And so believing, that, that God, believing just that God created the world um, is incomplete knowledge. And so we want to consider in what ways does God preserve his creation. 
And so I have, I have four points in this section, and I, I think I was relu I'm reluctant to use, these are the terms that, that I admit that Frame uses, and these terms aren't important. I'm going to be frank. I, what's important is just the idea. Some, the scripture is important. These are just labels, uh, so don't get caught up. Don't think that to be a Christian, you've got to remember this stuff. I mean, um, next year I'll probably... If you ask me the four points are, I'm not going to know. So, um, but the, idea, the ideas are good. So if we can go through um, the ideas, um, first, this I, metaphysical, um, meta just is a, is a prefix that means transcend. So we're talking about transcending the physical. And so it's, it's God's um, act to maintain the existence of the universe. And I, I, I want to uh, suggest that um, um, not only did God create the world, but if, if God didn't um, uphold the world, it would cease to exist. So if I have, anybody have a pencil handy? Oh, you got a pen? So it's like, it's like this. If, if this was me, or even the world, right? And the only reason I can stand is because God holds me up. The only reason the world continues to rotate on its axis, if you will, is because God does it. It's not even that he permits it. Permits not even strong enough a word. He does it because the moment he withholds his grace, withholds his power, his, his providence, it falls. Guaranteed, it's going to fall. God holds everything together. That's critical. It's not just that he created the world, but everything depends on his existence. So while we agree with Aquinas, absolutely, we go further, we go further and say that all things depend on God for their existence. Everything does. Um, so um, if you recall, we had from the Westminster Confession, this is something I brought up before, his works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful acts of preserving and governing, the key word here is governing, all his cre uh, creatures and the creation. Um, let's see, keeping going, I'm, I can see I've got little time left compared to how much I want to get through. All things distinct from God stand in dependence, uh, relation to God, a relation that is both direct and abs absolute. This is the verse that I keep going to. If um, you want to pick a good verse to memorize, this is one of them. In Christ, all things hold together. He is before all things, and this to me is one of the top, my top verses for um, proving the deity of Christ in Scripture. Every created object depends upon God directly for its existence. And, and remember, I'm trying to say that we depend directly on God, not indirectly, not like, um, oh, well, God made this, and so therefore I depend on that. No, directly. It's not just that my body depends on air and water um, and that these things in turn depend on God. No, I, God keeps everything together. He, in every case, our dependence on God is direct. And that's kind of, I, I told you there are two things that I didn't like what I said last week. Not that I didn't like, well, the personification, yeah, I didn't like that. The other thing at the application when I was in 2 Corinthians 4 is I didn't go far enough. I focused on Paul talking about us being in, in fragile vessels, and I use the example of me getting old, but, I, but that's not enough. 
We're, we're not fragile just because we're getting older. We're not fragile just because we're susceptible to, to disease or COVID or something. We're spiritually fragile. And that's what I neglected to talk about, that we need to depend on God every day because we're spiritually fragile. It's, I mean, you know you are. Am I right? You know you are. And that's why we need to go to him every day. Every day. So I think God's dependence, the dependence is thorough. It's continuous. God doesn't launch things into existence and allow them to persist on their own. We depend on God because everything depends on him. That's what I'm trying to say. So that's the first one. The second point is... Um, uh, redemptive historical preservation. I never would have come up with this term on my own, but it's the idea that God's, uh, it refers to God's temporary preservation of the world from final judgment so that he can bring his people to salvation. He has a, he has a long-term plan. And so he has, it's in a sense, um, he has things to do. He's got plans. Um, for example, while God warned of death in Genesis chapter 2, right? What did he say to Adam and Eve? Eat this fruit, and what do you say? You will surely die, right? But they didn't die at that moment. They, did, they didn't. So what happened? Oh, what happened is, is that God continued to allow them to continue to live. Yes, death was introduced, right? Death was going to be a future reality for them. But the fact that they didn't die immediately was really an early indication of grace. Um, so immediately after the fall, God gives grace based on his attention to redeem his people through Christ. That's something that I, that I hope that you see when you study Genesis. That Jesus is throughout the pages of the Old Testament, but especially, especially in Genesis. Um, so the world is being preserved because God has redeeming work to do. Um, Paul, in his uh, preaching, his evangelistic preaching at Lystra and then later in Athens, points to God's providence as evidence of his patience with sinners. The, the point is, he's doing this and he's where, um, so, so that they would see God. He's at, basically, I'm having patience with you so that, so that um, more people could be admitted into the kingdom. It reminds me of... Um, he says in, in, in Romans, don't, don't misunderstand God's, God's patience, right? Um, I, I probably shouldn't refer to verses unless I know exactly where they are. Um, so I'm getting off the page. I'll get back to here. Um, so in Christ, uh, the Redeemer, in whom all things hold together, he intends to reconcile himself for all things. That was part of his purpose. So I said, Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. Why? There's a purpose. These are the verses that follow. Um, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness that dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or in creation. Uh, uh, third, covenant preservation refers to God preserving the lives of believers. He's preserving our lives. He, is, he, is, he cares about us. He has a plan for us. And there's many examples in Scripture. The one that, we referred, that I referred to last week was um, with Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. He said, um, you, meant it for, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and what was the reason? So, so we could preserve life. He wanted to preserve 
the, uh, the remnant of the Israelites. Um, covenant preservation. As he feeds and clothes the sparrows, he clothes us. Uh, God is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. And then, of course, there's eternal preservation. That's redemption uh, itself. When God revealed himself to Abraham, I think in Genesis 22, one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament has to be when, when Abraham uh, was told by God to sacrifice his only son, the son he loved. Has to be one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. And what we learn is that uh, the Lord will provide. He provided a ram for the sacrifice. Abraham said, you know, um, um, where, is, where is the lamb? And God said, I will provide the lamb. Where I will provide the lamb. And so in place of Isaac, um, God provided the lamb. When God re- pro- uh, provides salvation to his people, he preserves them so they will not fall away uh, for all eternity. Um, this is, uh, I got ahead of myself. Truly, truly, I say to you here who hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life, he has not come into judgment, has passed out of death into life. And then uh, again, later in John chapter 10, um, maybe somebody else could read this. Go ahead, Chris. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are so this is what referred to as um, the doctrine of preservation of saints, what we call God, uh, God preserves us. Um, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says. And so um, what's our, what should be our response? Um, so I try to, like I said, come up with application for each one. And um, so I thought about this one. because I remember that uh, years ago, gosh, it's been about 35 years ago, I remember a tape that, Diane, that I got from Diane Walls um, from R.C. Sproul from one of his Ligonier conferences. And he had a message on, is God, if God is sovereign, why pray? Um, and I would argue that if God is sovereign, then you should pray. In fact, I think I, that everyone's a Calvinist on their knees. And we pray because God is sovereign. If God wasn't all-powerful, if God didn't control all things, then why should we, I mean, if, we, if man was in control, then why bother to pray? I'd just go up to the man. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. Because God doesn't do it. You do it, right? God is sovereign, and we go to him in prayer because I know that Chris isn't going to give me what I want. I know that Johnny's not going to give me what I want, but maybe God will work in their lives to give us what we need. And so we pray. I mean, now, admittedly, we, I, you know, in a personal level, I have a special needs son who I don't think has the fear of God in him. And it's hard. He's, he's, he's mentally, he's very, uh, he's very young. And so I pray that, you know, that God would change him. And I pray every day for that. Every day I pray that, that he would give Joel eyes to see Jesus. But if I'm wise, I also pray that God would change me. Change me. What can I do to help Joel? What can I do to help Joel see? What can I do to love him? What can I do to be a good example, to be a good father? And it's a challenge because 
I want to put it all on God. I don't want to take responsibility. And, you know, that's a confession that I make. Um, but we pray to God because he is sovereign. That's, that's why we do pray. And, you know, if God governs all events according to his, his perfect and pleasing will, if God governs all events, doesn't it make sense to make your, re your requests, made, make them known to God? If he's the guy in charge, don't you want to go to him and say, God, please do this. I know you're in charge. Now, someone can say, well, Randy, I mean, you say he's in charge. And he's got everything worked out. How is it that your prayers are going to do anything? And that's what the, kind of the question is rooted in, right? The original question, if God is sovereign, why pray? Here's the cool thing. God is pleased to work out his providence through our prayers. I don't know how he does it, right? But he does. He uses our prayers. The Bible says so, right? The prayer of, an, the prayer of a righteous man is, is effective, right? Right? And so God uses, he works through our prayers, and he wants to encourage us when we see those prayers answered. He's trying to encourage us. He loves us, and he wants, he wants to see. But, but it's, it's not that prayer changes things. God changes things. So when I, I see that signs that say prayer works, that's good. Prayer does work. But really, prayer works because God works. And we pray to God because he works. That, that's our motivation. So if we know that we're called according to his purpose, then shouldn't we... Shouldn't we pray according to that, word, that will, right? We know um, this is the confidence we have before that. If, if anything we ask according to his will, that's why we pray according to his will. Oh, it looks like I have a little note here that I'm supposed to click multiple times. I'm kind of messing up my slideshow here, it looks like. I'm getting too uh, excited. Um, so if we know we're called according to his purpose, and so I've got I've to remember to do that. I've got, looks like I've got two clicks on these things. <laughs> Who knew? Should pay attention to my notes. I did this eight weeks ago, so that's the problem. Um, so let's see, where am I? And I'm on 33. So if knowing that God's judgment is certain and that we ought to live a holy and godly lives, then shouldn't we prayerfully lean on the strength of God? Right? Doesn't that make sense? And so this is, was, was my thought. You know, fear not. You know, God will strengthen us. He'll help us. That's why we go to him in prayer and he will uphold him with his righteous right hand. If we live and move and exist in Christ, then shouldn't we beg for grace? Right? If, that, if this is true, then shouldn't we go to God in prayer? That's why we go to God in prayer, because he is sovereign, because he, is, he does care, and he has the power to do it. And he says his grace is sufficient for us. If God gave you ears to hear the gospel and began a good work in you, shouldn't we be offering prayers of thanksgiving, right? And he began the good work in you. He will perfect it. And that's an encouragement to me. I think Philippians 1, 6, another just wonderful, encouraging truth. And so I want to close briefly because we'll probably say the Lord's Prayer today. And when we say the Lord's Prayer, I, I just think throughout that prayer, um, it acknowledges the providence of God. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer this morning, um, try, I, I think I meant, did I mention this, how I look at the words sometime, or was that another class? Hard to remember what I say. I'm sorry, I'm getting old. And so, I, well, I talk so much, I don't remember who I tell what. And so, um, but oftentimes I read the Lord's Prayer during the prayer, even though most of us close our eyes and say it by, you know, by memory, because we know it, 
I probably said more our fathers than most of you because I was raised Catholic and went to a Catholic school growing up. And so I said, our fathers and Hail Marys like you wouldn't believe. You know, because you go, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, and I tell them, you know, well, I did this and I did this. Go say, you know, 10 Hail Marys and five our fathers. I'm not kidding. That's what the priest would say, you know. So, but that, so there's a tendency for me to, to say the, the Lord's Prayer and do it from memory and not think about what it says. So oftentimes during, during that part at the end of confession, I look up at the screen so I can meditate on those phrases. And in those phrases, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. I mean, think about it. Okay, it starts off, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so, you know, do you rest on God who rules the heaven and the earth? Right away, Jesus is, says, we're acknowledging God's authority. Right away. And it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so Jesus instructs us to pray to a, to a, a God whose will is always accomplished. So if his will is accomplished, it would be wise to pray according to that and, and, and to pray to him and ask for mercy. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to rely on God. We rely on him for our daily bread. Again, it's providence. Remember, the, in the root of the word providence is to provide. God provides for us. He says, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Only a sovereign God has the power to forgive sins. Even the Pharisees knew this. And do not lead us into temptation. If this, this, to me, is the most striking statement in the Lord's Prayer. I don't know about you, but for me personally, this statement is striking to me. Because, wow, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's two parts here. I mean, do you pray that? Do not lead me into temptation. God is in control of all those details. Keep that in mind. Pray in advance. Expect to be tempted. But say, God, please, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And he says then, for yours is the kingdom and the power. He deserves all the glory, right? Only a sovereign God possesses the kingdom and the power. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, even today, that when we worship, when we leave here, and in 30 minutes we're going we're gonna to sing songs, and we're going to, some of us will lift our hands to you, and we'll lift our hearts, all of us, I pray, we'll lift our hearts and our minds and praise you, and might we consider how glorious and how wonderful and consider your sovereign uh, control and your sovereign mercy. May we, even during confession, when we confess our sins, may it be heartfelt. Help us not to have our minds wander. And then when we confess our sins and when we pray the Lord's Prayer, might we think and meditate on the truth of this prayer, that, you, that, that your will might be done, that you have mercy on us, that you give us our daily bread, and that you not lead us to temptation, and very importantly, deliver us from evil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.